Well, if you happen to have the privilege one day of loading up in the Suburban with the Montgomerys, you would find it to be quite an interesting experience. Going on a trip to Walmart, five minutes down the road, you might think, these people have it together. Not a whole lot of problems happen in five minutes, usually. However, on a ride to the grandparents' house, which is about two and a half hours, it's quite challenging. We don't, we don't come off shining like we did before. Here in a few weeks, we're, by the grace of God, going to be taking a trip to El Paso. Out to see the folks at Santa Teresa. About a 10 to 12 hour drive. You can stay home and be thankful that you're not going to be in the suburban. You can pray for us. Not simply because there's not much room in the suburban when we're all in there, but uh, the longer the road, the more difficult the journey. Well, so it was with the people setting out on their wilderness suburban experience, their journey to the promised land. The longer it went on, the more the murmurings. The greater the spirit of discontent. All springing from a heart revealed deep within that was full of unbelief. Because really that is the root of sin. Unbelief. If we have to strip it all down and ask why is it that I struggle so with sin, I simply don't believe God. I don't believe God that his promises are superior to the promises of the enemy. I don't believe God that he can really do what he says he will do. And so I take matters into my own hands. And I begin to unfold my own roadmap, And I begin to make my own plans. You see, a five minute trip to Walmart, you think we must be okay. Love seems to abound. And my kids are thinking, what five-minute trip to Walmart are you thinking about? <laughs> well, I'm comparing it to the trip that we're going to take coming up soon. But the longer we are together, the more we realize that we, in fact, have issues. Sin issues. Issues that need to be dealt with at the cross of Christ and by the power of the gospel. A drive in the car can reveal quite a bit about the state of your heart. So it was and remains today with the church in the wilderness. In the wilderness she is exposed. In the wilderness she is vulnerable. In the wilderness she is tempted. And in the wilderness she is relentlessly pursued by a spiritual force, an enemy that desires to overtake her. It is this thought of the church in the wilderness that I want to turn our attention to today as we return to the drama of the battle for the cosmos that we have been looking at in Revelation chapter 12 all the way through chapter 15. We come again to focus on Revelation 12 verses 1 to 17 and we look again at the battle that the church has with the dragon that we have labeled as Act 1 in the drama as it unfolds. 
We have seen that this act has four scenes of players, a plot, a proclamation that is made. And now in verses 13 through 17a, the first part of verse 17, we're going to notice the pursuit. We'll say more about those things in a moment by way of review. But at first glance, in our daily experience, we often feel that the wilderness form of the journey that the Lord has put us in in this world might be a form of cruel and unusual punishment. It's kind of a difficult thing walking through our lives. You may find yourself in those conversations with your spouse where you just don't think you can make it one more moment or, you know, it's just been a long and exasperating day. You know, the old joke of the guy that comes home from work and the wife looks at him and says, they're yours, you know, while she walks out the door to go somewhere else. Uh, that, 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 that phrasing or that saying, that joke didn't happen because one family found that to be a true experience. It's a common experience to multiple people in the world in this valley of shadows that we walk through. We find it is, it is through the wilderness, however, that the church has revealed to her her true self, her true identity. You may start off the day feeling invincible, but you soon have that picture shattered. You may start off the day feeling defeated, And you soon realize that in your own power, you could actually trust your feelings at that moment, because it's true. (laughs) You and your own strength are defeated. The wilderness has a way of revealing to the church her true identity, her true self, her sinful self, her, her murmuring self, her unbelieving self. And the wilderness also has the, the effect of removing from the church false, worldly, and unprofitable affections that she has latched onto, that she thought would sustain her, that in fact, when push comes to shove, they don't prove to be sufficient to the task. The wilderness has a way of also replacing false affections with a love for the gospel rescue of God. It makes us cry out to God all the more when we begin to feel the weight of our sin and realize the absolute emptiness of those things that we have surrounded ourselves with to give us support. Reading through the Gospels, we come upon the the beggar. Jesus, Son of David! Have mercy on me. And they all tell him what? Be quiet. Don't bother the teacher. And realizing his absolute helplessness, he does the only thing he can do is what? Cry out again. Jesus, Son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me. And here, you and I walk through the wilderness of the world and you find yourself crying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And finally, the wilderness has a way of reconstituting her to fit her for her heavenly inheritance. As you see the, the Israelites walking through the wilderness, God's, uh, in, in effect, he's, he's, he's cutting off the, the excess baggage of the people that just don't seem to make it and don't cut it. One by one, it seems. And finally, they wander around in this wilderness until the entire generation of the unbelieving is what? Is dead. But the believing generation is led into the land of promise. In fact, we have driven home in the wilderness experience of the church the truth 
that the writer of Hebrews speaks of in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. Now, it's a little difficult for most of us as adults to think back to what we really felt like when getting disciplined by our parents. You know, we've kind of repackaged everything, you know, sometimes in the sense of, oh, every time my mom went to spank me, I just laughed, you know. Or every time, didn't bother me, I like to go to my room. No, in, in fact, getting disciplined can be devastating. You, you see it on their little faces, you know. And, and it's so bad that in a matter of a few seconds after getting after them, you feel bad. And you forget, you're not the one that did the wrong. They look up at you with their little pouty faces. I can't believe that you're doing this to me. Your faithful child has followed you all the days of her life. You know, a couple months, a couple years, you know, whatever. What was it Katie reminded me of this morning? I remember one time when you spanked me on Sunday morning, and I went out and told Mom, it didn't even hurt. <laughs> That's Katie! <laughs> Yesterday she turned 18. I don't think I made it, did I? Tried to give her 18 swats throughout the day, but she's fast. She's quick. <laughs> Couldn't get her. Laid in bed last night and realized, I'm five short. So I got her this morning. <clears throat> Discipline can be devastating. And their faces, they look at you and they begin to question your love for them. That you're really for them. But in fact, God's discipline for His children. He says, the Lord disciplines the one He what? Loves. And He chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Why don't I discipline everybody else's son in the neighborhood? Why don't I discipline everybody else's kid in the fast food restaurant that's pitching a tantrum on the floor? I want to! But I don't! Because they're not my sons! Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. Remember that, He's, he's fitting us, He's fitting us through the wilderness for the land of promise. He's fitting us for that eternal day. He's, he's fitting us so that one day we might stand before His presence, what? Blameless and with great joy. He says, for the moment... This is one of those statements in Scripture that's like the understatement moment. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Yeah, I'm feeling that. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness 
to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. He borrows this imagery from the Old Testament. The people wandering through the wilderness. Remember what happened to the, to the, to the, to the weak kneed, drooping hands, limp leg people? They wandered in the back, the stragglers, and the Amalekites came and picked them off one at a time. He says, don't, don't let people straggle in the back. He said, bring them, bring them with you. Lift up the drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Hear this, strive for the peace for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will what? See the Lord. Turn with me to Revelation 12. I want us to, 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 to see how these things unfold in looking at the church in the wilderness by setting out three things for us today. I want us to look first at the setting again. Uh, the context of the drama or the context of the battle with the dragon. You know, one to kind of pull it together for us once again. It's been seven days. We've had a little bit of leakage probably as the week has gone on. And maybe we've missed uh, one or two of the sermons in the last few weeks just to kind of pull the picture in together for us. Number two, I want us to set out somewhat of the structure of the scene. And those two, those two points are going to be very brief uh, rather introductory almost. And then we want to get to the heart of what we want to do today is set out some lessons for the church in the wilderness. So again, one and two, the setting and the structure are, are a little bit, uh, or the context and the structure are somewhat brief. And then we want to come down to some lessons that we want to notice. Look in verses one through three. The players. Remember the four scenes. Four scenes in this opening act. Revelation 12, 1 to 17. Act 1, the battle with the dragon. Four scenes. Scene number 1, the players. Who are we dealing with here? A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven Diadems. These are the key players in this opening stage of the drama. The woman who's great with child and the dragon who's great with, with vehemence and hatred. He's poised to attack the woman. So, in a sense, there's three players. There's the woman, there's the child, and there's the dragon. But, again, it's pictured as two signs. Sign in heaven, a great sign in heaven, the woman who's great with child... And then another sign appearing in heaven. This is the great red dragon. So these are the players that kind of set the opening scene. Lights go out. Lights come back up. It's scene two. The plot. The plot is laid out in verse four, verses four through six. His, that is the red dragon, tail swept a third of the stars in heaven and cast them to the earth. 
The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. We mentioned that this plot is characterized by rebellion. There is a rebellion in heaven that then brings us back down to earth. So the opening scene is in heaven. The scene of the woman, the the picture of the woman, and the picture of the dragon, this is in heaven. But scene number two, the plot, takes us back down to the earth. The dragon sweeps his his tail through the heavens and, and sweeps a third of the stars out of heaven, signifying this angelic rebellion where they now come down to the earth. And they come down to the earth for the specific purpose of catching the woman in her vulnerability. And he wants to devour the male child. Why? Because the male child is the one thing that stands in his way of obtaining his goal. And his goal is world domination. And the child is appointed. Notice the child in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child. He is one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This takes us back to the ancient text in Psalm 2, where God has appointed His Son on Zion, His holy hill, the King who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's by God's decree. It will come to pass. Though Satan thinks or hopes he can thwart this plan, and he can devour the child. He can can devour Christ. And in and, and, and a very brief, encapsulated statement, it says that the child is born, but then he's what? He's caught up to God. And it was, we mentioned last time, this, this, this sums up very, in very brief comments, the birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the exaltation, and now the session of Christ up on the Father's throne in heaven. You think of those times in the history of Christ's life, when, when Satan sought to rid the world of the Christ child there at his birth. Or when he's a very young child. Is it not Herod who tries to seek the life of Christ uh, under the guise of trying to worship him? He tries to get the Magi to come and, and uh, tell him where the child is that he might come and worship him. But they know that Herod's simply seeking his life. They're, they have this revealed to them. And so they don't go tell Herod. Herod then goes on a frenzy, killing all these children two years of age and below in the entire region, uh, which was just in keeping with things that Herod did. He killed people all the time. He was a wicked and evil king. All throughout the life of Christ, people try to lay hold on Jesus. Over and over again in the gospel narratives, when Jesus begins his public ministry, the scribes and the Pharisees and various groups try to lay hands on him, but they can't. Why? Because his hour, it says in the gospels, has not yet come. But when his hour does come, God sovereignly oversees that he is taken captive and he is put on the cross. And the real thing that brings about his death is not simply the hands of wicked men, but it's the purpose of and decree of the Father, because it was by the death of Christ that Christ would then be raised, and Christ would then be exalted, and Christ would be triumphant over all of his enemies, supremely the enemy of death. So that's the players, and that's the plot. 
The lights go down, the lights come back up, and we're at the third scene in verse 7. War arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, and he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, and the ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come and the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto the death therefore rejoice O heavens and you who dwell in them but woe to you O earth and sea for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short because of the work of Christ in his incarnation his, his birth his life his righteous adherence to the law of God, his death, his burial, his ascension, his resurrection, and now his session, because of Christ, in brief, because of his triumph over his great enemy, that dragon, Michael is now given all that he needs to what? Assemble the armies of heaven and cast the dragon out of heaven, and we're back where? We're now back down on the earth. So we started in the opening scene, uh, in, um, we started in heaven, And we were cast back down to the earth while the dragon pursued the child. And having missed the child, we're now cast back up into heaven. We're given a picture of what Michael and the angels do. Casting the dragon back down, throwing him back down to earth. The church is seen to be triumphant because they hold to the gospel. And they hold to the testimony of the gospel. And they don't love their lives even to the death. So there is rejoicing for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life in heaven. But for those who dwell on the earth, there is a woe that is spoken. Because the devil has come back down to earth and he knows his time is short. Now this brings us briefly back to the earth to look at this fourth of these four scenes. So I want us to notice something of the context of this fourth um, scene, what we're going to call here the pursuit, speaking of the pursuit of the dragon. So we start with the players, the plot, the uh, proclamation that is made about what goes on in heaven, and now we come to this fourth scene in this first act, the pursuit. Let's read through it. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the presence, excuse me, from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth, and after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And let's stop there. Really, that last phrase, and he stood on the sand of the sea, should be uh, attached to chapter 13. It is in the King James and the New King James. And uh, so, see there, Matt, I'm throwing that bone out there for the King James on that one. Um, That should not be at the end of chapter 12. It should be at the start of chapter 13. And we'll mention that later. All right. 
three phases in this scene. The pursuit of the, the, the woman by the dragon falls out into three different phases. And notice again in the opening line in verse 13, it says, When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth. And this connects it with what has happened in verses 7 to 12. Remember the dragon has been cast down, or the dragon has been thrown down out of the heavens. He has no no rightful place any longer to accuse the brethren in the presence of God. Why? Because Christ has triumphed over, if you will, all of those accusations. And there's no longer a place found for him. He's thrown down. He is cast out. He is dismissed from the courts of God. And we notice something else about this, that he's thrown down to pursue the woman. Look back up in verse 6. It says, and the woman, in verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness. Why does she flee? We're not told in verse 6 why she flees. So at that moment, we're left wondering why she's fleeing. But here, in verse 13, we're shown very clearly why she's fleeing. She's fleeing because she's being chased. She's being pursued by the dragon. So let's think about the three phases. Phase number one, the dragon pursues the woman. Verse 13b, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Having been thwarted in his attempt to get the child... The child is now taken back up to God, caught up to God, in contrast to the dragon being thrown down. The the, the son is taken up, and he is secured and installed on his throne in Zion, and, and the devil realizes he cannot get the child anymore. So he turns his full attention on the woman, and he pursues her. And how he pursues her... Um, you know, it's not necessarily specified, but he pursues her. And the point of the passage is, is that in the midst of this pursuit, the woman is granted or given by God, notice the phrase, the wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Now that's got to be one of the strangest things we've read so far. The woman is given giant wings that she might fly away. I mean, if it wasn't the Bible, you'd probably look at it and go, well, that's almost funny. Well, what's it, what's it all about? Go back to Exodus chapter 19. Throughout this passage and throughout the book of Revelation and truth, <coughs> there's much about the Old Testament, much about the people of God that is being recast in a new picture, in a new image for us. In Exodus chapter 19... The people have come out of Egypt. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. They're ready to receive uh, the laws of God. And notice what it says in Exodus 19, verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
The passage Tate read from just a little while ago in Deuteronomy 32 says that he made him, that is his people, ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock, oil out of the flinty rock. Before that, though, it said, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No God, no foreign God was with him. What's going on here in the book of Revelation is God is, 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 is using the picture of the Exodus to show that a greater Exodus, in fact, is taking place due to the work of Christ. Due to the work of Christ, God has led us out of sin and captivity and death, and he has brought us into this wilderness where we will be nourished and cherished and cared for by the Lord. And notice the time. It says it's going to happen for a time, times, and half a time which would indicate uh, three and a half times, or in the book of Revelation, three and a half years. And if you go back up to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 6, it says they're going to be nourished for 1,260 days. The Jewish calendar is 360 days uh, for the year, and if you do all that math there, if you will, it, it equals three and a half years, or 1,260 days. In other words, what we're talking about, we're not talking literally in terms of chronology. What we are talking about, though, is the it's the same time. It's either 1,260 days, back up in verse 6, or here it's described as a time, times, and a half a time. So this is phase one. The devil, the dragon... The ancient serpent is in pursuit of the woman. Notice, secondly, it says, after she has been taken out into the wilderness, where she will find a place to be nourished for this amount of time that the, that the devil is pursuing her, the serpent then foiled. He can't, he can't get to the woman. He can't reach her, if you will. In his pursuit, she's given these wings of this eagle, so she flies away faster than he can move, so to say. So what does he do? It says in verse 15, in phase 2, the serpent pours water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Often in the book of Revelation, things that come out of the mouths of people, either one are messages of truth or messages of error. You might recall back in chapter 11 where it talked about the two witnesses that pictured the church as speaking out of their mouth the words of truth and the words of the gospel in this age. Well, here we see the great dragon spewing things out of his mouth, lies, deception, falsehood, trickery, and their lies and deception, they're pictured as a flood. And you might imagine or picture in your mind a mighty rushing water or flood that is now pursuing and coming after the woman. Well, everything looks like it's going to be lost for her. Verse 16, though, says, But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. The earth here is somewhat personified. It's almost as if the earth itself takes the responsibility on itself to protect the woman. But the imagery here is, is very divine in orientation. God overseeing this entire thing. The, the, the earth opens up and swallows up the lies or the enemies of the people of God. If we were to go back to the Old Testament, we might read of those men that stood in rebellion against Moses. 
with their lies and their deception and their wickedness. And what did God cause to do? He caused the earth to open up and swallow them and their entire household. In other words, those lies that come against the people of God are, 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 are sovereignly overseen by God and God preserves His church once again. But the devil, or the dragon, is not done. He pursues the woman by pursuing her offspring in a third phase. Verse 17. Then the dragon became furious. You can, you can see the intensity of his frustration. Uh, he, he, thinks he's got, he thinks he's got it all made. He's found this woman who is vulnerable with a child. And, and she's defenseless against his powers, and he stands there poised and ready to take the child. Well, what happens? God snatches up the child just when he thinks, we've got him. Just like those moments in the Gospels where the people had cornered Jesus, you know, right there on the edge of a cliff. All right? They, they bring him out to the precipice, They bring him out to the edge of the cliff, and they're like, well, we've got him now. And what does he do? He passes through their midst. You know, it's like one of those Obi-Wan Kenobi moments. You don't want to throw me off the cliff now. And he walks through. You know, if you're a Star Wars person. Anyway, the, the point being, Jesus just walks through. And they must have been like, where'd he go? At the cross. Surely. There must have been this great, passionate joy that wells up in the hearts of the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they stir up the crowd and they get Pilate to do exactly what they want because Pilate is spineless and has no ability to make a real, solid decision. And they get him to the cross and he breathes his last and he's dead. Yes! But in fact, what? No. What appeared to be Christ's greatest defeat was actually his greatest moment of triumph over the enemy. And then the church, for all of these years, being pursued by the dragon, thinking that surely he must have her now. He can't seem to wipe her out. In fact, as Tertullian says in the history of the church, it is what is the blood of the martyrs that is the seedbed of the church. Remember the story of Tom Askell tells of a, uh, a pastor overseas in the Asia area. I'm not sure the actual name or the actual location, but he was being greatly persecuted and he was being threatened by death. And the, uh, the authorities came to him and basically uh, they had the gun on him, if you will, and they, they said, if you don't stop preaching... We're going to kill you. And the preacher looked at him, and I'm paraphrasing poorly, but he said basically to him, if you use your weapon, you'll force me to use mine. And the guy is like, what? What weapon? He said, if you kill me, I'll die. And if I die, my books, my sermons, my influence will have such a rapid effect in the entire world that my message of the gospel will go out and will win so many more souls to Christ. So go ahead. Use your weapon. And I'll use mine. By the grace of God, this man was spared his life. The wicked 
officer realized yeah, that wouldn't be very good. That'd be kind of counterproductive. But in fact, many times throughout the history of the church, men have been killed for the cause of Christ and greatly persecuted. And to this very day, we have some of the greatest persecution going on in the church all around the world. And Satan thinks so often this is the way to win. But he's so stupid. He's, 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 just, he's just stupid. He just doesn't understand. All that it does is it causes, as Paul would say in Colossians chapter 1, for the afflictions of Christ to be filled up in the body of the church. Why? That the message of the gospel might go and go and go and go more than it ever could if the church was just left alone and given peace. But the devil being as dumb as he can possibly be, he pursues the woman with the flood, a flood of lies, a flood of falsehoods, not realizing that falsehood is no True weapon against truth, because truth triumphs over falsehood. And foiled at that attempt, he now begins to pursue her through her offspring, which kind of launches us in to the study of chapter 13, looking at the beast and the false prophet. But we'll save that for another time. I want us to look at some lessons that we learn from this particular text. And I'm looking at that clock, and I'm thinking, well, we started a little late. But we'll try to we'll try to wrap up here a little bit. Let me just give you some of these to be thinking on. This church, this picture of the church in the wilderness. In the wilderness, the church must not fail to acknowledge the real, even though spiritual presence of a formidable foe in the dragon. Though we have couched this in terms of the church's preservation, the church being nourished, the church being preserved, the church going to a place in her existence now prepared by God that God oversees, that God cares for her in, we should not think that this means that the battle that we have with the dragon at present is imaginary. It is in no way imaginary. Peter says to the saints that he writes to in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Think rightly, Christian. That's what he's saying. Be watchful. Don't go to sleep, Christian. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It may be true that Satan has been cast down. It may be true that he has been somewhat defanged or the stinger has been taken out of the bee. But he is still a formidable foe. And he can still create much harm on the church. The church needs to resist him standing firm in her faith. She needs to be sober, be vigilant, be humble, be mindful, continue to cast her anxieties upon the Lord and know that her enemy is a very real enemy indeed. In the wilderness, the church must acknowledge the real, even though spiritual presence, of her formidable foe, the dragon. A second lesson to consider is that in the wilderness, the church must remember, in light of this fact, that that, that Satan is very real, and Satan is very formidable. 
That we must remember and call to mind often the promises of God, not doubting His word to never leave her or forsake her. Jesus said things like, in John, in this world you'll have what? Tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Interesting connection came for me uh, in the past few weeks here that I'd never really thought about before that was very helpful to me. If you look in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter um, 33, the whole story is in 32 through 34. It's the, it's the incident of the golden calf. Remember they've... Uh, Moses has been up long on the mountain. Moses has left them. The people begin to forget. The people begin to grow weary. The people convince Aaron to make for them and manufacture for them and and craft them an idol of gold, a little calf, that they might then follow and call God. And this will be the God that led them out of Egypt. They didn't mean for it necessarily to replace God, but in fact, images made of God after the creation in the end, do that very thing. They replace God. They corrupt our image of God. God is not a calf. <laughs> God doesn't have hooves and horns. God doesn't have, you know, a little bitty body. You know, God isn't to be identified with something that's probably, what, two and a half feet tall and goes, Murr, or whatever a golden calf would do. Golden calf, I guess, wouldn't move at all. But you get the point. So God comes and tells Moses later on, <clears throat> After he decides not to wipe the people out, God tells Moses, look, you go ahead and go, get the people and depart, pack up camp, I want you to leave. Now I'm going to send, uh, I'm going to send an angel before you, all right? and I'll drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all the other ites that might be there. I want you to go up, go with this angel, and go take the land. And Moses is like, um, but God says, I'm not going to go. And Moses is like, well, that's just not going to work. <laughs> that's just not going to fly. We, we don't want to go anywhere, even if we could go into the land of promise, even if the angel could help us conquer all the ites in the land. If your presence will not go with us, we're going to what? We're going to stay right here. Now, God knows what he's going to do. And God is testing Moses and testing the people. And eventually, God says, toward the end of chapter 33, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. In other words, it won't just be the angel. I will lead you in, and I will give you rest. My presence will go with you. Now listen to this. Now you're going to sit there and go, gee, you just figured that out, huh? Well, I'm a... Pooh bear kind of pastor, big bear, little brain, and it takes me a little while sometimes. Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. It is the promise of Christ that he will be with his people in this greater exodus, this greater conquest, leading them into the land of promise and rest. 
The church must remember and call to mind often the promises of God, not doubting his word to never leave her or forsake her. When Jesus was going to be born in the world, his name would be Emmanuel, which would mean God with us. When the church assembles as a body and exercises discipline for caring about the pursuit of holiness, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, that where these two or three are present, Jesus is what? Jesus is present. He is right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, when the Corinthian church is called to bring about discipline on the man that was having a relationship with his father's wife. Paul says, when you're assembled and the power of Jesus is present. In Acts chapter 18, verse 10, when Paul is given this great task to go, Paul is assured of the presence of Christ in going. And when Jesus tells those beleaguered disciples, worried that he's going to leave them, he says, I will send you what? Another helper. And he won't what? He won't leave. He won't forsake. Do you ever feel alone and wandering through the wilderness of life? That's just, hear this, that's just how you feel. It's not true. It's not true. You are never alone. You are never without the presence of the omnipotent, exalted, enthroned Christ with you everywhere you go. In the wilderness, the church, thirdly, must fight against the constant temptation to doubt God's power, His promises, and His purposes. I had I, I us used today as we move through the service, Psalm 78, and I did so intentionally because we are not to be asking questions like our fathers in the wilderness. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? That is a, that is a question of doubt. It's a question of disbelief. It's a question challenging God's ability to actually do what He said He would do. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? The answer is yes, He can. But we ought to be saying God can spread a table. He has spread a table. He has filled my cup full. He has given me bread. He has given me a cup. He has given me His Son. And that is a meal that will sustain me through the wilderness of the world. In the wilderness, the church must, fourthly, not grow weary in the length of the days, causing her to forget the ancient truths given for her encouragement. Three and a half years doesn't sound like a long time, but it's the time of the 1260 days. doesn't sound like a long time, but those, that's, the, that's, the, that's the symbolic figure that is to represent this time between Christ's first coming and His second coming when the church wanders through the wilderness. In fact, leaving Egypt and going up to the southern part of the region of Canaan by way of Mount Sinai really just took a few days. It wasn't a real big, long trip. But because the church is so full of sin, and because the church needs to suffer through the wilderness of the world, it took them what? 40 years to make it there. You ever wonder why this life takes so long? Because we've got so much what? 
sin that needs to be dealt with and ripped away. And it's ripped away in the wilderness. And it's hard. It's hard sometimes in walking through the wilderness because we get so far away from those first days when those promises were spoken to us. I'm almost 35 years now past the time when I first realized the promises of the gospel. And I first believed in Jesus. And I first trusted in Him. And I, and I sat down last night with the kids. And, and we've started reading here this week. Just done a couple of readings so far. Reading through Pilgrim's Progress again. And, and we haven't even got to the wicked gate yet. And if you've never read through Pilgrim's Progress, read through Pilgrim's Progress. If you're fi- trying to find something to read with your family, read through Pilgrim's Progress. We're reading a modernized version. It's probably like the compromised version. I know it's not, you know, you know, it, it, it sounds... But it's, it's just so good. And, and, and we have all of them in there. And, you know, they have a way of getting off into la-la land. That's, that's okay. We try to bring them back. But we're talking last night about Christians who's on his way to the wicked gate, and he's gone through the slew of despond, and he's, he's dirty, and he's gross, and he's gotten out on the other side, the side toward the wicked gate, and, 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 he, and he meets up with this glorious-looking person called Worldly Wise Man. And he's like, wow, this guy looks impressive. And he has a son. You know, a Worldly Wise Man sends him to the town of Legality, or the house of Legality, where if Mr. Legality's not there, his son will be there, Mr. Civility. is the town, I think, of morality. And so Christian's like, well, gee, and, and he thinks he can get rid of his burden there. A lot easier than going all the way to the celestial city where there'll be difficulties like the slew of despond. And Mr. Worldly Wiseman says, oh, no, don't, don't go through all that trouble. Just go to the town of morality. They'll fix you up. It's over by that hill, that really big tall hill, Mount Sinai. <laughs> so he goes over to the town of morality, and as he gets closer to this hill, this hill gets imposing. It gets huge. And thunder's coming out. Lightning's coming out. And he's terrified. He's scared. And what does he do? Run away? No. Stands there. He doesn't know what to do. <laughs> he just, he's just caught like the deer in the headlights and doesn't know where to go. Finally, evangelist comes and finds him. And he's chastised. And he's disciplined. And he's reproved. And he falls on his face before this glorious truths of the gospel. And he says, is there any hope for me? And God is merciful to him. And God forgives him. And God sends him back, if you will, to the wicked gate. But one of the things that came up over and over and over again in my mind and reading and talking with the children was, what did, what did, what did Christian do? Christian doubted. He didn't believe the words of God. He forgot so quickly. He just left his town. He forgot so quickly the words of the gospel. And his heart so quickly turned out of the way and followed other words. Words of the worldly wise man. We must not grow weary, though maybe our initial hearing of those gospel truths may have been a while ago. And maybe we've wandered through the wilderness for a while. We cannot grow weary. We cannot forget those ancient words. It's a song by a gentleman by the name of Andrew Peterson. After Paul, I'm quoting Andrew Peterson on the day that he's not here. It's a song that he writes to his son. He says, when I look at you, boy, I can see the road that lies ahead. I can see the love and the sorrow. Bright fields of joy, dark nights, 
awake in a stormy bed. I want to go with you, but I can't follow. You can hear a father speaking this to his son. So keep to the old roads. Keep to the old roads and you'll find your way. Your first kiss, your first crush. The first time you know that you're not enough. The first time there's no one there to hold you. The first time you pack it all up and drive alone across America. Please remember the words that I told you. first heard that song and I, I, I thought about when I packed it up at 22 and I literally drove to California. Keep to the old roads. Keep to the old roads and you'll find your way. You'll find your way. If love is what you're looking for, the old roads lead to an open door and you'll find your way. You'll find your way back home. I know you'll be scared when you take up that cross. I know it'll hurt because I know what it costs. And I love you so much and it's so hard to watch, but you're going to grow up and you're going to get lost. Just go back. Go back. Go back, go back to the ancient paths, lash your heart to the ancient mast, and hold on, boy, whatever you do, to the hope that's taken hold of you, and you'll find your way. You'll find your way if love is what you're looking for. The old roads lead to an open door, and you'll find your way. You'll find your way back home. Friends, we must not grow weary in the length of days. We must not forget the ancient truths that are given to us for our encouragement. The prophet Jeremiah told the people, return to the old paths. A few more quick things. The church in the wilderness must remember the source of her supply. The source of the church's supply is not the oasis of the world. Remember, You've probably never gotten lost in a desert. I haven't. But you've heard about people who get lost in a desert. And they begin to what? They begin to see things. They begin to hear things. Maybe they think they see water. You and I may get thirsty in this world. But the only drink that truly satisfies is the drink that comes from the rock, which is Christ. The world promises many empty pleasures. But the food that comes from the hand of the Lord is the food with which we must be content. You might recall in Exodus chapter 16, the people were to go out every day and collect the manna. They were to collect their daily portion. And what is it that you're to pray for every day in your life? Your daily bread. Why? That you might know that, that, that your supply doesn't come from the closet that's stuffed full we have a hard time thinking that way in our day and age because our pantries are stuffed full of food. Imagine how you can do it. You can do it all the time. You look in a full fridge and a full pantry and you go, there is nothing to what? Nothing to eat here. We go spend 300 bucks at Walmart, come home, stuff the whole thing, and what? Eat out! <laughs> what is wrong with us? It's like walking in our closets. There's no room to get in there. And she says, I've got nothing to wear. Well, guys, we can say it too. What will I wear today while you stand in front of 25 shirts and four pair of shoes? Or 30 dresses and 40 pairs of shoes. You know, whatever, whatever it is. One last thing. 
In the wilderness, the church is faced, presented over and over daily, with the reality of her absolute insufficiency and God's absolute adequacy for every need. God makes it so in our lives that all we have left at our disposal is His aid, His assistance, and His answer. God takes away in the wilderness everything we treasured in the land of Egypt or the land of Goshen. Remember the land of Goshen that the people were put in? When everything else was horrible for the Egyptians, all the plagues were falling on the Egyptians, there's the little bright spot of sunshine in the land of Goshen. No plagues, no flies, no frogs, no dead maggots, no locusts, none of that. Blood over the doorpost, no dead babies. Protection. Safety, provision, and then God takes them out of that and throws them into the wilderness of the world. No wonder they struggle. It's no wonder that we struggle. But the reason that we're struggling is because we're longing for what? The, the world around us says, look, we've got all these things. Look, there's a better way. There's an easier path. It's the land of morality. It's in the house of legality. With his son's civility. And the end thereof is what? Death. But on the narrow path, on the way to the celestial city, are hills of difficulty, dungeons of despair, valleys that we have to walk through, battles that we have to face, and we face them every day. Friends, you and I need to be ever going back. Going back to the ancient paths and lashing our heart to the ancient mast. And hold on, boy, whatever you do, to the hope that's taken hold of you. And you'll find your way. You'll find your way. If love is what you're looking for, then the old roads lead to an open door. And you'll find your way back home. In the wilderness of this world, we are driven back over and over again to gospel springs, to gospel rocks, to honey that flows from the rock, the sweet gospel that comes from Christ alone. So walk through the wilderness together and hold to those ancient paths and drink from that very old, eternal rock, which is Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask for your help today. We are just a little while, if your providence perseveres with us and we remain in this world we are but a little while from going back out into the world, back out into the wilderness. And we will need to be reminded over and over again of where to go and find our drink. Father, we pray as we come to this table that you would remind us here of the glorious supply of eternal nourishment that is found for us in the person of Christ. This cup, this bread, may it feed us 
as your word has been preached, may our hearts be encouraged. And as this visible presentation of a wilderness meal is partaken of, may our hearts be renewed. May the covenant that you have given to us in Christ Jesus be reaffirmed. And may our our love for you bask in its smallness when compared with the love that you have for us in Christ. God, help us to lay hold of that great love with which you have loved us in Jesus in these moments at this table. In Jesus' name, amen.